But in Canada, there is this idea that bureaucracy are supposed to be neutral and that they're not political. Uh, but <laughs> I, 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 think, I think anyone who's followed Canada would know that that's not quite uh, how it happens on the, on the ground. All right, good day, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Voice of Gord podcast. I'm Gord. This is my voice. As part of a uh, series of shows I'm releasing for the second anniversary of the Freedom Convoy, the largest uh, protest and biggest peaceful protest in Canadian history, a seminal moment in uh, the journey of the nation of Canada. I'm interviewing a number of people who are involved with it directly. And in the case of this gentleman, someone who's just released an excellent book documenting uh, the convoy and its aftermath. Um, That book is called 210 Degrees Celsius, 16 Ways uh, the Truckers Paved the Way for Canada. (laughs) Ignited Canada for the long haul. Ignited Canada for the long haul. Pardon me. Um, Well, uh, the other voice you're going to hear, you just heard, is uh, Mr. Barry Bussey, the author of this wonderful book, um, a lawyer, an activist in his own right, and a great legal mind, uh, has joined the show. Welcome, sir. Well, it's so great to be with you, Gord. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my friend Donna Laframbois, who's been on the show, a writer, former writer for the uh, former journalist with the Toronto Star and Toronto Life Magazine and the National Post. She's working on this book called Thank You Truckers, which is a sort of Studs Turkle-esque documentary about the people who went to the protest. Not really the organizers, not the politicians, not anybody else, just the actual working class people who took part in the convoy and their specific stories. And um, she's been dribbling out little bits and pieces of it on her substack, and it's fantastic. And Donna told me about your book, and I immediately downloaded it onto my Kindle. And came to discover that, uh, yeah, you've really done your homework and in, um, in documenting all of the sort of like legal and political matters that have gone on um, before, during and after the convoy. Yeah, no, I tell you, I just uh, had enough of it myself. I I felt that uh, the mainstream media was having its narr- like just basically parroting the government narrative. And what I wanted to do with my book was to step back and say, hey, no, no, there's another uh, position, another view of what went on here. And people are missing the boat if you just listen to the mainstream media. And I just felt uh, it was important to air that side of what went on, because I literally went up on the streets myself and uh, I heard it. And then I, you know, compared what was what I experienced up in Ottawa and what was being talked about uh, in mainstream media. And I said, like, this is crazy. And then uh, because they were just so over the top against the people who were up there. And let me tell you, it was, it was the best experience really of my life as far as uh, recognizing that here were people who were subjected for so long during the COVID madness and finally, they had an opportunity to express themselves. And it wasn't in violence. It wasn't in smashing police cars. It wasn't 
burning buildings. It was just simply literally having a kind of a winter carnival festival of of hugs and high fives and passing around hot chocolate. And and it, it was just um, a great opportunity. And yes, there was an awful lot of anti-government, anti-Trudeau uh, sentiment there, certainly because people, you know, they lost their jobs. Uh, they lost houses. I talked to a number of truckers who, who shared with me how they, you know, lost everything. I mean, it was just uh, sickening uh, listening to what they had gone through because of their stand, uh, you know, a very basic human right we used to uh, figure that we had, which was uh, not let anybody know what our personal medical decisions were are or, uh, you know, the inviolability of the human person was absolutely sacrosanct up until a few years ago. So so all of that came together for me. And I I just like, OK, let let you know, what does it mean? And, and that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to say, OK, so what does the trucker convoy mean? And and a lot of people uh, will say that, oh, well, you know, it's really a one off and and it's a uh, it, it doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. But I, I am absolutely convinced. And every single day that goes by, I'm absolutely convinced it was a pivotal, a pivotal moment in Canadian history. And it's not something that is ever going to go away because people uh, who were there, which were into the tens of thousands and what it stands for, what it stood for and continues to stand for is just basic human rights, basic freedom. And that is not something that uh, is just going to die away. In fact, I, I think it's just building. I mean, this this uh, convoy is still rolling as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it sure is. And you see that in Germany with the farmer and truckers protests, um, the Dutch farmers. Um, there was some stuff going on down in Brazil. There was a kind of, I don't want to say a copycat, but there was sort of a convoy in New Zealand and a big protest in front of their parliament building in Wellington uh, for the better part of a month over there. Equally restrictive, vindictive and capricious COVID policies. And um. So you you mentioned you wanted to figure out what it means, and one of the chapters for one of your books is or one of the chapters in the book, pardon me, is um the inhumanity of the administrative state. Yeah, and something I've sort of I've kind of been following a sort of few dissident political thinkers and writers over the last few years, and I've had to wrap my head around you know the fact that. You know, the concepts like the deep state are actually true. Like we have a vast unelected technocratic bureaucracy that really runs the show. Uh, they are beyond the realm of accountability. You can't get rid of them. And then they network with the political parties and their donors and the corporations that they're all in bed with. And they're sort of like this massive parasite that just hangs over society and is pretty much suffocating it. And we, we see that with the COVID regime where they like literally went full tilt boogie, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, I'd call it fascism. Um, one of the sort of defining features of fascism is government and corporation working together to manage society with very little democratic input. Um, is that not exactly what happened under COVID? Well well, I yeah, I mean, the, the reality is, is that we have a system of government that government has become so huge 
that the elected officials no longer are the ones who are who are administrating the state uh, as it once was like 100 or 200 years ago or whatever. Uh, but now what's happened is that our legislatures have de have basically delegated their authority uh, to full time so-called experts working on behalf of the government uh, to implement the legislation. And, and you can understand that process because, I mean, you like in Canada, we have 338 members of uh, the House of Commons and 338 people are not going to run such a behemoth a state apparatus as we have in Canada. And remember, uh, and and obviously those who are listening from the United States would recognize, you know, already the U.S. is a huge state. Well, you put uh, the socialist programs that we have in Canada, you have an even larger state per capita. And so what happens with these uh, bureaucrats, they're in there implementing government policy and they have the wherewithal to be able to make decisions with respect to the 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 uh the peasants as it were the 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 lower people who are out there who have to suffer through uh whatever dictates that come from the bureaucracy and make no mistake about it when the government uh delegates authority to the bureaucracy the bureaucrats are in essence through their regulations creating law and they've been granted that and you know we we had like a number of people were sharing with me uh going to the border the canadian border and uh, because they never had their vaccine um they were brought up before the local health authority who was stationed right there and oftentimes these were young people i mean they were just out of the university often in their early 20s or so and now they're given the power to issue tickets of six thousand dollars per person uh and and uh, requiring people to stay at home, you know, quarantine and so forth. And then they would make little notes like this. Uh, one friend of mine, he he and his wife came through. They didn't have the uh, vaccine. And the young uh, girl in this case, who uh, was not accepting their story that they would, in fact, quarantine because they they said they would. But she put, put down a note there that uh, it, it was. Uh, uh, something like suspicious or that uh, they could not be trusted or something like that. The next thing you know, they go home and they have police officers showing up at the door and coming into the house to make sure that they're, they're quarantined. And, and it's like, you know, uh, the tremendous amount of power that was given to bureaucrats, in this case, it was uh, a public health authority. It, it, it's, uh, it's indescribable. And then, um, then you have, all of not only just the government apparatus, but now you have the regulators of various professions, such as um, the physicians, you know, the College of Phys Physicians and so on, that are now delegated authority to uh, regulate uh, doctors. And then suddenly they come up with policy and they're implementing policy on the physicians and I talked to uh, just a little while ago, I, I spoke to a, a physician who was, um, you know, went through 13 years of training and education 
uh, his uh, various um, internships he had to do in order to get his designation to be a uh, physician in a hospital doing um, uh, anesthesiology and so on. And and then now suddenly, because he doesn't go along with the program, he's out of a job. And but but the bureaucrats don't care. Uh, the healthcare authorities don't care. They're not worried about all of that effort and everything else. And and it's one thing to be absolutely certain in the so-called science that if we do not implement this program, then people's health are going to be in danger. And as time has now gone on, we recognize, no, it's not near as dangerous, not even close to what was fared. And yet you're still going to maintain this policy, like in the province of Ontario right now, that uh, has kicked out, uh, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of nurses, for example. And, and, and the government now is trying to get nurses from other countries to come and take the positions of the people they they fired why not just hire them back i mean you used them at the beginning of the camp uh, the pandemic uh, when there was no vaccine and they were perfectly fine then and that that was the heat of the pandemic that was that was when the virus was its most potent form and they were okay then they were they were the um uh, the heroes at the time and then suddenly because you got this policy and now we know that this policy uh has a few has a you know, is not uh, the the science that is supporting it is not what we thought it was, and you're still going to maintain this policy. And so the inhumanity of the bureaucrats I saw with the nurses who lost their jobs. I saw it with students who were in their final year of university, and they were told, "Sorry, but uh, you can't continue." And so now, uh, we we didn't know how long this was going to last, but. We thought like these students were like, OK, so is my career over now before it even started? Now, eventually, um, after some uh, shaming and all the rest of it, the academic institutions uh, backtracked and now allow students to come in that are unvaccinated. Uh, but but at that point, uh, you know, they lost an entire year or more of of their education and and like no one cared the one of the things that the students said to me uh i had a number of them that literally uh drove all the way out to my house because they were uh at that time it was lockdowns and so it was almost like a secret meeting you know they they migrated it out to my house and uh we sat down and and strategized and i helped them with uh trying to find exemptions uh some of them got it but uh, others didn't but, the, you know, their point was no one was speaking to them. Uh, when they would send in the email uh, to the university, they just got an unnamed email back. It, it was like it was like the bureaucrats didn't even want to put their name at the bottom of the email. Well, this is how this is how they obfuscate responsibility. Right. So in order to diffuse accountability and make sure that no one is ever actually in charge and no one can be fired and no one's ever actually, you know, holding the bag for anything. Mm. The bureaucrats don't have any names. If they do get called for something, they'll just say, well, my boss told me to do it. And then their boss right. says, well, this was policy. And then the policymakers say, Hey, 
you voted for us, we're doing it, and then nobody's ever held accountable, right? Mm-hmm. The whole yep, the whole exactly. system has a it's it's got a diffusion of of responsibility, which also means you're never going to get any accountability because there's no one thing you can point to other than voting maybe for a yeah. politician, but then the political parties are all effectively either evil, useless, or some combination thereof. And that doesn't leave the citizenry with a whole lot of options. No, a- absolutely. And and the thing is, is that because the bureaucracy stays in place from one election to another, uh, and, and it's only just going to be the upper echelon of that bureaucracy that will change in any change of government. And in Canada, unlike the United States, where there is this idea of the victor, uh, to the victor, the spoils, uh, where, you know, an incoming administration can change huge swaths of, of bureaucracy. And I think there's going to be even more change uh, coming up in, if, if we get a change in government in the United States. But in Canada... There is this idea that bureaucracy are supposed to be neutral and that they're not political. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I think I think anyone who's followed Canada would know that that's not quite uh, how it happens on the on the ground. So but you're you know, aware. It, speak, speaking of supposedly being neutral, yeah. you're a lawyer. Um, I'm sure you understand this. Seventy six percent of the judiciary in Canada are donors to and members of the Liberal Party. Right. And right. the entire judiciary is appointed. Nobody gets voted into that position, right? I know. And, and and all of the superior courts in Canada are appointed by the Prime Minister's office. I mean, and now, j- j- just so that you understand how that works, um, so we have what we call Section 96 judges. That's Section 96 of the... Um, British North America Act or the Constitution Act of 1867, as it's now called. And the superior courts are, are as you would uh, recognize, they are the more higher courts uh, across uh, the country. We have generally uh, most of the often the way it works in a lot of provinces, they'll say, OK, it's the Supreme Court and then it's the, the Court of Appeal. And now there are provincial courts, so the, the the all of the superior courts are federal, so they're appointed by the prime minister's office. Uh, you can imagine the amount of power and authority that that gives the office of prime minister when he or she will appoint all of these superior judges, and then they're appointed until there's age seventy five, and the same thing then with the Supreme Court of Canada and the federal courts of Canada. So tremendous amounts of power are given uh, with that. And because because the um, it's the politicians, i.e. the prime minister's office that appoints, you can rest assured that they are wanting to have loyalists to their ideology. Now, this I mean, this was always, I guess, a case in, in, in some respects, because there was this idea of um, once you're appointed on the court, you're supposed to be absolutely neutral. 
you're to a uh, you know you're adjudicating the law you're not going to be adjudicating ide ideological positions of the government or anything of that nature i'm personally of the view that right now in canada we're seeing a more and more ideologicalization if that is a word uh, but the the court the judges that are being appointed are in essence going through a test of uh, ideological the loyalty uh, test. The loyalty test, and 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 the reason and the reason why I say this, and for those who may be listening, and uh, some of my legal colleagues in Canada would be saying, "Hey, Barry, that's that's overstating it." But let me just state my case for a little bit. Number one, the prime minister has made it very clear that when it comes to the issues of justice, it's going to be his views that are to dominate. Where have we seen that? Well, we've seen it in a perfect example of his treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was the Minister of Justice uh, when he was first elected. And he appoints her Minister uh, of Justice, but she's also the Attorney General, which means she is the uh, top lawyer that's dealing with the enforcement of the law across the country. So it's almost like a conflict of interest, really, in many ways, because she's a member of the government, but she's also enforcing the law. And in Canada, we call all of our uh, government uh, uh, prosecutors as crown attorneys. Anyhow, the the thing is, she wanted to have or, or that there was a process whereby uh, a corporate uh, felon, uh, as they would say in the United States, but a corporate body, a construction company was involved in criminal activity in in Libya. And the Canadian government, uh, SNC Lavalin, the SNC Lavalin was prosecuting uh, SNC Lavalin, but SNC Lavalin, which gets all kinds of government contracts, if they were found guilty of this crime of bribery or whatever all else was involved, it would have not been eligible for any of the government contracts. So they were lobbying, lobbying the government like crazy. And so they actually changed the criminal code that allowed for uh, prosecutions of corporations to, in, in essence, to be able to get a, uh, a, a settlement that was not going to give them any kind of conviction and so they would have to pay a fine as opposed to being convicted and because and, okay. because a conviction would mean that the government would no longer do business with them in the future exactly and then what happened was is that uh they went through all this process they got to pass through the through parliament and but it wasn't of course uh, SNC Lavalin, but it was just in a general sense, right? So the the criminal code is passed, but everyone knew within government that this was going to be for SNC Lavalin. So then, when the office of the attorney general says, "Well, no, we're deciding we are not going to give that provision to SNC Lavalin," well, the prime minister nearly had a kitten over that one and got very angry and very upset. As SNC-Lavalin, which is a company from Quebec and the prime minister is from Quebec, you know, he's got lots of political uh, connotations here. And so he starts putting pressure on the minister of justice to change and to say, hey, you go down, you tell the prosecutor that, no, I, I want SNC-Lavalin to get the benefit of this new legislation. 
and she refused. And as a result of her re being ref uh, of refusing the prime minister, she was booted out of cabinet. And anyhow, in her book, which is a fantastic book, she says uh, something to the effect that the the prime minister has absolutely no problem in lying and expecting to just simply get away with it. And of course, we see that in spades. But here's the thing. He was willing to interfere and promote his view of what needs to be done when it comes to justice. And the other thing that we found out during that whole affair was uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was wanting to have a Manitoba judge appointed as our Supreme Court ju uh, uh, Chief Justice at the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Prime Minister said, no, we don't want him because we think that he is too conservative and that it wouldn't uh, he wouldn't properly carry out our ideological positions on the law. Uh, and so that is exhibit number one of the fact that, in my view, the prime minister is very much concerned that he appoints people who are going to agree with him ideologically on all of these superior courts, the courts of appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. Well, and this, is, uh, this is this is another example of the prime minister's sort of governing philosophy, such as he has one, and just his you know what drives him. Right? It's like it's a tox it's a toxic admixture of both his adoptive and biological father's terrible ideas. Mm. Right. And to, speaking of Ms. Raybould, um, I got a little tie in here for you. Um, before we began recording and in our communications, we've been discussing this situation in Alberta mm -hmm. with these four men who've been uh, held in remand now for almost two years. Yeah. Uh, no bail, no trial. Um, the, Justice of, I guess, King's Bench now used to be Queen's Bench. Justice of King's Bench in Alberta, who denied their bail, is a woman by the name of Jonna Kubik, who was appointed to the bench by none other than Jody Wilson Raybould. Mm -hmm. Ms. Kubik has donated to the Liberal Party of Canada, of which she is also a member, 26 times. All right. The reason she gave for the denial of bail of these four men, because they met, they passed the first level. There's the primary sort of factors involved. Are they a flight risk? Are they, do they have a history of violence? Do they have a criminal record? Um, are, are they going to like, you know, the possibility to reoffend? None of that applied. None of them had criminal records. I mean, the one guy had some kind of juvenile possession of ecstasy or something. And, perfectly upstanding citizens and she's like well we can't do that but on tertiary grounds because of the um seriousness of the allegations she said that letting those men out on bail would um bring the uh court system sort of into disrepute or doubt in the minds of the public so it was a sort of diplomatic way of punting to say my bosses want these guys inside. There's no reason for me to deny them bail. So I'm just going to make something up. Right. 
Well, I, I, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read that decision, but I tell you what, in our discussions, and I um, very much appreciate the work that you've done, because in preparation for uh, this interview, I, I looked up a number of the articles that you've written, and I just want to uh, compliment you for taking uh, this uh, so passionately, because these gentlemen, there is no question that they are suffering great injustice in this country. Now, on the issue of this judge, let me just say, first of all, every judge, I don't know of any judge that has been appointed that didn't have some kind of connection with the political party in power. It's very rare uh, because of it being a political thing. Now, granted, you know, the... Um, the the various Canadian bars, the Canadian Bar Association, as well as all the provincial bars, uh, they law societies, they would, uh, you know, they all make their recommendations uh, to the prime minister. And then it's up to the prime minister. Like they get there. There is a whole committee uh, system that works. But anyhow. Um, but nevertheless, when judges are appointed, they are required because part of putting uh, making sure that the administrative that the administration of justice is not put into disrepute is that the judges are not to be political uh, anymore. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, and and this is where the common sense people will say, "Hey, so you spend all your life involved in politics. You've given you said how many times? Twenty six times to the Liberal Party. Uh, so all of that, and now you're on the judge, and then you're going to tell us." Uh, now you're on the bench. Now you're going to tell us, well, I'm going to put all that aside as I administer uh, justice in the country. And so a lot of people will say, hey, hold on here a minute. Right. But anyhow, that's how we've uh, um, that's how the system works. That's, uh, you know, I'm sure there's lots of discussion about how we want to make things better. Uh, but it's. When we get these hot political uh cases like like what we have here uh that raises all kinds of questions and we saw that um i i, I can only just say uh because i've studied the uh, tamara leach case a lot more uh what i saw was that the lower courts the in other words the provincial courts the the justices of the peace who are literally who are not even lawyers necessarily, uh, but they're political appointees to sit in the lower court. And by far, they decided against Tamara Leach. And you cannot help but think that politics, or at least their political leanings, had some part to play in their decisions. And then it was the superior courts, to the credit of the superior courts, that overturned the lower courts and said, hey, no, this is wrong. Now, they never said, OK, it's because of your political leanings or anything like that. There was good legal basis as to why what they had said against uh, or decided against Tamara was overturned. And so I, I kind of have some optimism with the idea that the higher courts would recognize that, hey, we need to show the Canadian people that we are not going to be so chained 
to those who appointed us, right? So that's that's my optimism side. Uh, but as you say, here we have these four gentlemen. And from all that I have been reading to date, shows that there is absolutely no reason why these men should not have been released within at least within a week, if not less than a week, because most people are released within hours of being arrested. Sir, why they're not on bail is beyond me. May, may I suggest to you the answer is to be found in your book. OK, so you have obviously thoroughly examined everything to do with the Freedom Convoy. The, yep. emer the invocation of the Emergencies Act and then the subsequent inquest, which was referred to the Public Order Emergency Commission, Commission. All, yep. the, all the hearings, all the evidence that came out. Yep. Those four men uh, arrested in Alberta. Uh, if you look at Justice Rouleau's conclusion, right. he what was it? He, what was the term he used? He reluctantly granted that Trudeau <laughs> he, was. Yeah, that someone else who looking at the same evidence could come to a different opinion than him. Right. Well, if you look through his conclusion, he basically yeah. hinges his the, the what got him over the line of reluctance and said, OK, you're good to go, was evidence he claimed he saw about these guys in coots. Right. Mm -hmm. There was a famous staged photo of all these guns, most of yeah. which don't belong to the guys that were arrested. There was right. a, another group at uh, at the Coots protest site who have re, uh, basically escaped scrutiny. Some of them were charged with mischief and various things by the RCMP, but none of them did jail time. That's right. almost never discussed. Yeah, it's never it's not discussed that the pre-trial hearings and motions did not start for these four guys until after the Public Order Emergency Commission. Right? Yeah. They yeah. did not get charged with conspiracy to murder police officers until a day after they'd been arrested. Um, a, a lot of the evidence against them is taken from notes from two undercover RCMP officers who sometimes those notes have no corroborating recordings because they weren't always wearing a wire. Some of yeah. the evidence being used against them is from social media videos or implications from language or the fact that the men were part of a telegram group that was run by some old guy retired somewhere in Alberta. And they claim that this old guy with the telegram group is a member of like some controlling opposition. That's going to overthrow the country. Do you know how much evidence there is for that claim? Zero. zero. Yeah, right. Absolutely and they, zero. And, and the media went into overdrive to smear all these guys and the defense had to obtain a publication ban on initial uh, information to obtain and details around the case because they were basically repeating unsubstantiated allegations by the RCMP and everyone mm -hmm. who like such as there are, because there's very little discussion about these guys out there in the media at all. But whenever mm -hmm. you run into it, like I I'm really upset at this. There's a fellow named Andrew Lawton also mm -hmm. wrote a book on the freedom convoy runs, right. a runs a media place called true North center. A few, yeah. week, a few weeks ago, he did an AMA and asked me anything on his YouTube channel. And someone said, hey, how come you're not talking about the Coots guys? And immediately he's like, well, you know, I don't have the money and we don't have the resources and we don't have the reporters. Okay, dude, you 
have a media company that's got advertisers and sponsors and book sales and you employ all these people that work at TNC, how come any of them couldn't pick up the phone? I've written two articles for Newsweek. Do you know how I did it? I picked up the phone. I talked to the men's yeah. advocates. I built up trust with them. They started calling me from jail and I was able to take notes and write all this down. You know yeah. what? And I did it on a budget of zero. Do you know how much yeah. money I got from Newsweek for those articles? $200. Yeah. No, sorry. 200 for the first one and 500 for the second. Right? So if Andrew yeah. Lawton wants to sit there and tell me that he doesn't have the resources to adequately report on this or ask any questions. He's full of shit. And then he dissembles and says, well, they're accused of conspiring to commit art to murder RCMP officers. They should be in jail. Oh, without bail for two years and with no evidence to support any of the claims of the government. Like you credulous son of a bitch. Right. Mm. I was, I was fuming when I saw that I'm like, I'm nobody. I'm a truck driver expat that doesn't even live in Canada anymore. And by picking up my phone, I was able to find out more about this case than you who has employees with the official title of journalist. Mm. Right. Mm. So mm. I, I, I get really upset. We have this whole, like um, these orbits of like alternative media people and YouTubers and people on rumble and all these websites. And like, you know, they, they, they accuse the mainstream media of like being liars and not doing their jobs. Okay, that's true, but a lot of these guys on the outside are doing the same thing. Like, mm. how hard is it to pick up a phone and take notes and ask questions? I'm, I'm sorry yeah. for the rant. I got I got a little yeah, bit yeah, no, about that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the thing is, I I don't know Mr. Lawton. I, I've read his book. I, I think it was uh, a good book and uh, certainly would recommend people reading it. And uh, so, I, you know, I have no no information to be able to speak one way or the other. But the, the only thing that I would say is that we are in a situation where uh, I, I, I will say this, but I, I, I take your point uh, about, you know, picking up the phone and calling these guys. And maybe because they have been so maligned, uh, maybe there is this uh, people are being shy about, well, who are these guys? What are their stories? But all they have to do is read your Substack, read your uh, two articles you put up in Newsweek. I think people would get a very good idea of, hey, this is not what we are being sold. And so it's extremely important for us to sit back and say, hey, what what can we do? And I can I can tell you even now, as a result of reading what you wrote, in, as a result of uh like I say, I've been caught up in my own world of trying to to make a go of things. And um, unlike the mainstream media in Canada, which are subsidized with hundreds of thousands of dollars per media, like like, first of all, CBC, millions, of course. Yeah, well, there it's there. It's like one point two billion given to our CBC, which I think uh, once Pierre Polyev is uh, prime minister. Uh, that's going to go, or at least that's what he says. Let's see that he actually fulfills what he says once he's elected. But anyhow, the point is, there is no question that the state media and state supported media are, you know, uh, are definitely compromised, even if they, you know, one journalist, uh, Paul Wells said, well, 
You know, I disagree with the fact that we're uh, being somehow delegitimized by uh, by receiving all this money. But when people make that argument, I have no comeback because uh, what what am I to say? And I think I think they have been delegitimized in many ways uh, because of them receiving all of the government money. And the government is passing legislation more and more like this uh, crazy legislation where they're taxing uh, or trying to tax Facebook and uh, others. Yeah, Bill, Bill C-18. Yeah, I mean. That's let crazy. me tell let me tell you a story about what the effect of Bill C-18 has been, right? So these two Newsweek articles I wrote about the boys. The first one went viral. Hundreds of thousands of views within a couple of days, right? right. It was yep. shared by Maxime Bernier, Brian Peckford. It was all over Twitter. Like, you know, it, it got put on full blast, right? Yeah. C-18 comes along. Uh. About two months later or so, I write this second article after having interviewed the gentlemen, spoke more with their advocates, you know, did the gumshoe hard work of journalism and compiling notes and, you know, trying to write something. And it goes out and it like might as well have not even been published because in Canada, Facebook and all the rest of these guys. My sister tried to share that second Newsweek article on Facebook and Facebook wouldn't share it. It right. said, you know, right. we're fighting with Meta or whatever or with the government. Yeah. And yeah. it it went nowhere. It yeah. absolutely went nowhere. Thanks. Thanks, Justin Trudeau. Yeah, for freedom of speech. Like I like it, Yeah. You know, and, and I think this is the this is the big thing. I, I I see government putting a big net all around the entire country when it comes to freedom of speech issues, wanting to control the Internet. So CRTC, which is the uh, the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, which is now taken upon itself by because of the government's legislation to say that now they are going to control the Internet. So. How how amazing is that? I mean, so our Canadian bureaucracy now is going to be controlling the Internet, making sure that uh, the Internet does not interfere with um, the messages that the Canadian government wants us to hear. Uh, I, I mean, which other country can we think of that would have that kind of that legislation? Sounds, that sounds very juche. That's uh, that's the uh, that's the Kim family, I think, from North Korea talking right yeah, there. Yeah, and and what what about what's happening in China and all the rest? Of, like, I mean, it's just insane what's what's going on. But so government and notice what's been happening over in Davos in the last little while. The last few days, they were talking about controlling misinformation and disinformation. Well, there has been no more an entity that advocated disinformation, in my view, than the current Canadian government. I mean, you talk about disinformation. Listen to what the prime minister said about the unvaccinated and all the rest. I mean, it's just mind boggling. Uh, to see what's happening. And now he's planning on um, controlling or or uh, vetting what people will be saying on the internet. I mean, it's just insane. Uh, like pretty soon all podcasters, and they, and they keep denying it, but uh, everyone knows full well that eventually what's going to happen, anyone doing a podcast in Canada is going to have to be registered and we're going to have to eventually 
you know, follow some kind of uh, code of conduct and all the rest. And make no mistake, the prime minister has a particular animus towards certain independent media, such as Rebel News, for example. I mean, I think I think Rebel News, Ezra and all of them are getting under the prime minister's skin. And you mentioned Andrew Lawton, but the true north, I, they too are under the gun when it comes to the prime minister. So so there is a lot of um, things going on right now. That, so are, but, do, do you perceive that you will also be under the gun? I mean, we got right into this conversation without even warming it up or really introducing you to my audience. I mean, we're both very <laughs> passionate about this. Um, as I as I understand it, you've uh, you've worked with a few different organizations. Um, yeah. uh, how long have you been a lawyer for, sir? You know, someone asked me that the other day, and I can't believe it's been that long. But I graduated from law school 32 years ago, uh, been called to the bar, uh, so that it'd be 31 years now. Uh, in 1993, I was uh, uh, called to the bar. Yeah, 19, so 1993 is when I started high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, only just a young man. That's just all. just just a young and so I was reading up on you a little bit. You're originally a Newfoundlander? I sure am, one hundred percent. Right. What what community did you grow up in? The metropolitan area of Foxtrap. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, so uh it's in Conception Bay, which is uh to the west of St. John. So if you look at the 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 west side of, of the, the Avalon, Avalon Peninsula. Yeah, so we're we are yeah, so we're just just the next bay over from St. John's going west, and uh, so there's uh, a, an area now that they call it Conception Bay South. But growing up, we didn't like basically what they did was they took all the little villages and they amalgamated them together and called it Conception Bay South, which means nothing really to us. We are still known uh, by our little villages, you know, like Calagrues, Foxtrap. Long Pond, Manuals, Upper Gullies, all of those kinds of little villages. And um, uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm I'm from Foxtrap. Right. And did you go to uh, Mun? I did. I uh, got my master's in political science at Mun. Wow. There's an old yeah. friend of mine who hasn't talked to me in a long time. And I don't know if it's because he went crazy or just had a bunch of stuff going on in his life. He also went to Mun. And he's from Grand Falls, Windsor, originally. Uh, I, I'm okay. not gonna. I'm not gonna give away his name or anything. I think yeah. he. I think he might have been a little bit behind you, though. He's probably in between your age and my age. Okay. Yeah. But he he did a double major, uh, po political science and philosophy. He's one of these people that's like, uh, borderline genius and or crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um. Good, good guy. I wish you would talk to me. Uh, Chico, if you're out there and you're listening to this, uh, what, 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 what gives bro? Are you all right? <laughs> That's not his real name. That's his nickname. But, yeah, um, yeah. uh, so your upbringing in Newfoundland, you know, Newfies have a reputation in Canada for being really friendly folks. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, oldest part of the country, you know, uh, the Leif Erickson and the Vikings showed up and then the French yep. and, it's it's uh, theorized that the Bosque were fishing for cod off the Grand Banks before Leif Erikson even showed up, and they just didn't tell anybody. Right. And um, right. so there's always been people there, but it's um, when I try it, I've been to Newfoundland once, and I worked with a lot of Newfies uh, out west when I was working in the oil patch in Alberta and running up on the ice in the Northwest Territories. Lots right. of Newfies, and you know your guys' reputation sort of precedes you. 
And I, um, I sort of try and explain to people, it's like a, an admixture of Ireland, um, Ireland, Scotland, and a little bit of Canada. And, um, just, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard to sort of nail down and say what it is. Yeah. Like Newfoundland, <laughs> Newfoundland is truly a unique place. Like it is. geographically I, and like yeah. culturally. Yeah, it is. You know, it's fascinating. Growing up, I, I explained to people, you know, uh, your last name in Newfoundland uh, gave you pretty much an idea as to where you're from, as far as where you live on the island, uh, what religion you are, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, and what political party you will vote. It, uh, you know, just, just your last name would, would uh, give you all that information. That, that's kind of like how stuck in their ways they've been now of course i'm sure that's very different today but growing up that was definitely how it was and so every little port you know you'd have one area is catholic one area is protestant and so forth and and it was like everyone kind of kept to themselves pretty much uh but and now of course there's a lot more mingling and like you know when um if uh, Protestant married a Catholic or so forth, and you know that was, those were big social issues, all of that kind of stuff. And now we look at it, and we say, "Hey, so like, uh, what was that all about?" You know, and and then you know you went to your own school system. Uh, that was a big thing right up until 1997. Uh, we had um, uh, distinct Protestant and Catholic schools. Uh, that was uh, very much part of uh, the thing. Is, so, is that still the way yeah. in Ontario? Uh, so in Ontario, in yeah, in Ontario, uh, they there is a Catholic uh, system, but that was part of that was part of the agreement that brought Canada together, right? I mean, there was this idea that okay, uh, you'll have religious schools, you'll have Protestant schools, you have Catholic schools, and it was a way of of trying to politically uh, be practical in uh, bringing uh, the different people groups together, which was very simple back then, right? You had your indigenous people you had your french you had your english and now of course it's even you know all kinds of complications right so would you say that like you know i think newfies have a pretty sort of unique sense i don't want to say unique but they're they're kind of stand-up people for the most part um a, a particular approach to justice as it were and you know what's right and wrong and like they're very upfront about things newfies often don't have a filter and i'm just wondering <clears throat> if your upbringing there sort of like is what led you to practicing law or, oh, yeah. or nope. uh, it informs your sort of activism and your writings and your approach to justice today oh there is no question uh when i was just a wee lad um i um would be going door to door handing out pamphlets for my uncle who was a uh, member of the Newfoundland legislature, and he was in uh, Frank Moore's cabinet back in the early 70s. And uh, so literally, like, I mean, I was I was born in 65. So by the time I was like 72, 73, I'm only seven, eight years old. But I remember very, very plainly, I remember going door to door, handing out flyers for my uncle. And so right at that age of seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, going on, uh, I was very much politically motivated uh, back then. And uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, debating uh, it, part of the Newfoundland heritage is that it's a very oral uh, tradition. So 
sitting around my grandparents' table and the kitchen with the wood stove going and, you know, talking and debating and telling stories and all of that, that was that was part of growing up. And and so politics was all part of it. Religion and politics, the two things you don't talk about in Newfoundland, we always talk about. And it's uh, it's just those things is what we did and and be all kinds of arguments. My dad would tell me even now um, when he was uh, younger, uh, they would be getting so angry, you know, people pounding tables because of, you know, various positions people would take. Um, I saw a little bit of that, but not a whole lot, but uh, certainly saw lots of passion and debate and so on. And the other thing that I like about uh, Newfoundland is some of the characters, the political characters, uh, people like John Crosby, uh, who passed away uh, probably in the uh, last within the last five, 10 years. I can't remember exactly, but fairly recent guys like Brian Peckford. I mean, you can't get any any more guy who's willing to stand out there and tell it like it is, you know, than Brian Peckford and uh, just uh, just a great individual and um, willing all all the way uh, standing for justice, standing for the right. Uh, it was it was kind of like that's what we did. And, you know, when you have a a place that has the history that we have, for example, the French came, uh, fought off uh, the Spanish and the and the English to say, OK, we're taking over now. And then the Brits would come back and then they'd fight and they'd uh, take it back over again. And and and, and we've we've had that several uh iterations where the French took over and the English took over and then the French took over and, you know, fighting over the fish. Um, and so I guess it's in our blood, uh, you know, as far as debating and discussing and, and trying to find out, uh, like, even in my own family, like my grandfather uh, was among the first 500 who signed up at the very beginning of World War One, and he ended up being involved in a number of battles. The, the Newfoundland Regiment in World War One was independent from Canada, for example. Yeah, and because so, you guys, uh, Newfoundland didn't join Canada till what, 1949? 1949, that's right. And so we were under various uh, British, I guess, generals and so on. And uh, so we fought with the Aussies in Gallipoli. We fought with the New Zealanders in France. and the Battle of Somme on July 1, 1916, uh, is when our entire regiment was decimated in 30 minutes. Beaumont, Beaumont Hamill or something, right? Beaumont Hamill, that's right. And my grandfather was there and he was wounded and ended up being shipped over to London where he recuperated and then sent back again uh, once he recuperated to fight again. You know, it's that's how it was. Wow, and, that's, uh, that, that's quite something to be a survivor of the RNR because almost none of them guys came back. 60, 68 answered the roll call the next day Oof. out of 800. And so my grandfather was among the wounded. So he was shipped back to London. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it was brutal. Can you imagine 19 years old he was when he was in that battle? Can you imagine the amount of of atrocities he saw where his buddies were just literally blown to pieces uh, it's incredible to me. And unfortunately, my grandfather was, uh, I would say, a very damaged man. He was, uh, he had, uh, 
you know, the whole post post traumatic uh, syndrome in in spades. He was he was a very troubled individual uh, throughout life, and uh, and and those ramifications are still ongoing, in you know, in the, in many ways. And it, it's um, I've often thought of that. In fact, I've got uh, after he uh, came back from the war, he was um, uh, the Newfoundland government would send the uh, veterans to university or where, wherever they wanted to go. Some went to, to back to England or Scotland and became uh, physicians. Others uh, went to Dalhousie University, like my grandfather, and he ended up going and becoming a land surveyor. And uh, I, so I have his uh, I have his compass uh, from his transit. Oh, wow. And, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So this is uh, like this goes way back to the early probably who knows, uh, probably to the early 20s or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, so you know, it's it's just amazing uh, when you when you see the the history and the sacrifice that uh, and Newfoundlanders even to this day I talk to a lot who are in the Canadian military and have been over the years. A lot of my friends, a lot of my neighbors uh, joined up in the military. Uh, it's kind of like it was it was a um, one of the things that a lot of Newfoundlanders did over the years. Yes. Yeah, many many such cases with outposts of the mother country being yep. called to defend uh, defend the king and his interests. Um, so you leave Newfoundland eventually because now you're in Ontario, mm -hmm. and you've been doing a lot of work um, with would, would would I be incorrect in calling them faith sort of centered organizations? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, in my legal practice. Uh, working for um, Christian charities of one form or another. Uh, and what has motivated me, I guess, throughout my career has been the sense of the issue of law and religion and religious freedom. That, that, that was, uh, that's always been a big part of my uh, thinking and part of my uh, activism, if you wish, or my uh, advocacy. I've been involved in a couple of, well, five, I guess, five cases now at the Supreme Court of Canada where I've been there intervening on behalf of various religious organizations uh, dealing with religious freedom issues. And it's it's always been part of my writing and all of that kind of stuff. And so one of the things that really struck me was that while I was working at the last place where I, I was involved, uh, I had been in-house counsel there for 10 years, heading up the uh, the legal department, is that I, I felt it was necessary to speak out of what was going on during the pandemic. I saw the pandemic and the treatment of the unvaccinated as a spiritual issue. Anytime, anytime a state seeks to take you, the corpus, right? It's kind of, it's, it's a, a long-term tradition in in the law and in various religious communities that the state has no business uh, taking the human body and doing what it wants. Like in other words, the state can't experiment with people. The state can't just take people off the street, put them into jail. That, I mean, that was, that was the whole idea of habeas corpus, right? I mean, so you took the person off the street and then no, and and then finally, you know, the courts were saying no. Bring the body here. I don't want to hear about the person. I want to see the person. 
And and we had this, you know, from Magna Carta onwards, we had this this idea that you can't just you can't just treat people like that because historically in the Judeo-Christian understanding, man was made, man meaning men and women, uh, was uh, are made in the image of God. And the law always had this great sense of respect for the individual. So when you have a prime minister and you have a government saying you must take a vaccine and whatever your religious position, whatever your thought on the matter, but if you want to keep your job, if you want to be able to fly, if you want to be able to travel, if you want to be able to go on a ferry or a boat, you've got to be vaccinated. So on this you, point, you're now going into the internal philosophical religious mindset and you're violating the body to boot. And and that's what really got me going. Right. So, yes, that is a violation. And I have used a term that some people get triggered by. Some people think is overly strong, but I, I think it's an accurate reflection of what went on in Canada. And that term is medical apartheid, right? Mm -hmm. If you did not uh, comply with the government's dictates to take this new and experimental gene therapy into your life, you were barred from using federal transport the, pr the provinces tried to bar you from all kinds of private businesses where they normally would have no basis or legal grounding to prevent you from interacting with someone else like that. And they basically treated the unvaccinated like lepers, like a separate case almost, mm -hmm. you know, like the untouchables, yes. the Dalits in India. And, you know, that actually happened like that happened. This is not, I'm not ma I'm not making this up, and no. people get really mad because I use the term apartheid, and it's like all it is, all that is is Afrikaners for apart. It's Afrikaans. It means apart. That's literally yeah. what it means. But because it it's been so long associated with a particular political ideology out of South Africa, the term has been um, isolated, and it only means that, and you're never allowed to use that language again. Yeah, well, see, that, that that's another problem I have with our current society that seeks to commandeer language for its own ideological purposes. And I think we have got to fight back against that. Uh, and I think there is no question that the unvaccinated were vilified in a way that we have not seen in Western democracies ever. Other than maybe, I suppose, we could say, you know, the treatment of the Japanese, that this just popped in my mind, the treatment of the Japanese during World War II, uh, where they were, in essence, put into internment camps. Um, but, you know, there were also religious people put into uh, internment camps in Canada, which many people don't realize. And uh, work, they're called work camps. Uh, uh, but those who were conscientious objectors to bearing arms, for example, uh, Mennonites uh, and others, uh, they were put into camps around the country uh, and basically in forced labor. Um, and, and 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 I understand, like so. So what what it was was that they, if you refused to go into the military, then you served the same amount of time. And actually, the religious 
uh, young men had no problem with it. They just felt, okay, we're going to serve the country uh, in this way uh, by working in the work camps. And some of them left the work camps as soon as it was allowed to be on the front lines with the infantry as medics. Uh, and a number of them um, uh, in 19, towards uh, the middle half of the uh, middle and latter part of the war, uh, they were allowed to do it uh, where they could be actual medics. And some of them were like literally following all through the Liberation Army as it was making its way uh, through Europe and up into Holland and, and the Netherlands and all the rest. So, but all of that to say, there was this uh, sense within Canadian history that we recognized the image of God in people and we and we didn't violate um, the individual conscience in the same way as we saw now. And so, yes, it created a us and a them. It created an apartheid. It, it created this idea that, well, the, like the question the prime minister asked, do we tolerate those people? Really? It's incredible. Yeah. Um, the scapegoating and outgrouping and divisive language of the prime minister um, probably only exceeded in uh, debasement by his later attempt to say he didn't actually do that. Yeah, like his, no. his later lying about it, you know, like yeah. um, the, the man, he's he is my nemesis. I think Justin Trudeau's the worst prime minister Canada's ever had, you know, and there's been a few doozies. Um, but like yeah. this guy, one of the things I noticed when I went to Freedom Convoy, when I went to Ottawa and I've said this on a bunch of other podcasts and I'm going to keep saying it. So my regular listeners, sorry about the repetition. I went out on one of those overpasses about 50 kilometers west of Ottawa near a place called Almont, kind of near Carp. And I was with some friends and we were on one of those overpasses welcoming the Western convoy into town. And it became apparent to me immediately that this wasn't about the truckers. This wasn't no. even about the truckers vaccine mandate. This was about the beginning of healing a deep, deep wound in Canadian society. Yeah. Like, yeah. People were overjoyed, man. It was 25 below out that day. It was cold. And with the wind chill, when the wind yep. chill, it was like minus 30, minus 35. But people yep. and, were and just that's Celsius. Yeah. That's Celsius. <laughs> yeah. And like people were just overjoyed. I never saw more smiles and everyone hugging each other. And yeah, it was just, it was I'll never forget that day as long as I live. It was just no. one of the it was one of the best human experiences I ever went through. And then I get back to the U.S. a few days later and the government's trying to say that we're Nazis and racists and homophobes and committing violence and robbing um, the uh, some like, you know, uh, shelter for the homeless. And like, what in the hell are you guys talking about? And I, I guess that I guess that went on for three weeks. Like they just lied and lied and lied and lied and lied nonstop to the point where people still believe it, you know? Yeah. Oh, oh there's no question. and. The bigger the lie, the the more that people believe, I think, in some ways. And that's why I felt it was necessary uh, to write what I wrote to say, hey, no, it was not that. I was there. I saw it. And many people have, of course. And 
my other purpose in writing was simply to say, hey, this is not something that was just over after that three week episode. And then the, you know, the Emergencies Act came in and the the riot police went through the people and did what they did. No, <clears throat> this has motivated Canadians like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's only continuing. There are so many groups and organizations that are meeting on a weekly and sometimes daily basis around this country where there's various small group meetings. I was at one just the other night, uh, Saturday night. Um, we word got out, uh, uh, Greg Hill, who founded the Free to Fly, he was a Air Canada pilot who was no longer allowed to fly because he was unvaccinated. And he had spent many years as a uh, in the Canadian Air Force and flown all around the world, been over in, uh, on various missions and so forth uh, overseas in Iraq and so on. Uh, and here he is, a, a Air Canada pilot, uh, denied the ability to fly, to have an income. And he pushed back and started this program called Free to Fly. Well, anyhow, around the country now, he is having various meetings. I'm doing it at my house even. I have a garden, a, a gar annual, it's now become an annual garden party. So uh, make sure, Gord, if you can, next August, August 11 is when we're going to do the next one. Uh, but here at the house, we have people come last Last uh, year, we uh, the first year we had like thirty five. This year we had like seventy. We were we had had a meeting uh, Saturday night with Greg and his group, and there was over a hundred people. And this was just simply spreading the word. Hey guys, you want to get together, and and people come together. And this coming together, I tell you, and this this is why I say as well, it's a spiritual experience we're experiencing now, in the sense that. In the sense that when you go against a person's conscience, you're dealing with that inner soul, that 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 deep understanding of what it means to be a human. And that is not what being a human is, that we submit our bodies to the state is like, no, we don't. That that is crossing the line. And all of look, and, and I hear a lot of people like. I hear them in my head now as they're, they'd be listening to me. They'd say, well, well but there's a, a pandemic and you're endangering people's lives. Well, listen, bullshit. It's very simple. If you're sick and you're contagious, stay home. I mean, stay home. No problem. Well, they have to lie and obfuscate, right? Like the, the, the fear got to them so bad. And they allowed the propaganda to, to get into their heads that they have to deny basic facts, such as the people affected by COVID the most were if you were north of the age of 60 and had comorbidities. And yeah. the government did nothing to, like, focus its concern on the most vulnerable instead of crushing all of society, right? Yeah. If the government had just come out and said, listen, if you're over 60, if you got hypertension or you're diabetic or you're obese or whatever, you should probably take this vaccine and you should probably hang out at home and do whatever. But they yeah. crushed all of society and they're trying to like make this bogus moral argument 
that if you object to the crushing, like you're responsible for killing people, and that's bullshit. It's 100% BS, and I won't stand for it. Mm, yeah, and and I think more and more people are not going to stand for it. Like, I mean, the you know, you listen to the crowd over in Davos the last week or so, and they were uh, going on about, you know, when the next pandemic comes. You know, I heard uh, Tony Blair recently. You know, he's, okay, when the next pandemic comes, and you're going to have to have multiple vaccines. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? Like, I, like, how is it that we got all this figured out already, you know? And But anyhow, the point is, is that they have lost the ability to convince people at this point. There will be some, of course. Uh, and unless they're going to come in with a heavy hand of the state, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see how, I mean, anything's possible on the other end of the barrel of the gun, uh, I suppose. You know, people will do all kinds of things. Uh, but um, it seems to me that there is now a recognition uh, that people are going to be a lot more critical in their thinking of things in the future. Um, and while, while yes, there was an awful, we, we saw the example of people just doing things because, well, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to, you know, all of that. And, and that has powerful and that, uh, that has, I mean, there's a lot of hurting people out there even now, but I've talked to a lot of them. And they tell me, look, I wouldn't change it one bit. I'd still uh, not accept uh, the job for the sake of going along with the state on this issue. Uh, there's no way. And and as we've seen, as it's unfolded, you know, the government jumped the shark. It was way overdone. And uh, so anyhow, I, I just mm. I just don't see the government being able to do the same thing again. In fact, um, uh, you look at the polls in Canada right now and the conservatives are like just absolutely way ahead in the polls. And they're they're making it very clear they're not going to be uh, like it, it's going to be a very different mindset that's coming in now. And I think there's um, we, we see it happening in so many different places, including in the United States. But, you know, it's just um, we, so we've kind of had enough of it. So, so you said, you know, people are now motivated and there's lots of meetings and people are getting together and rekindling the spirit. Um, I want to get back to your uh, professional opinion as one who practices law. What are the only ways people want accountability too, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the only methods to do that, it seems, is through the court system. And as we've explained earlier, uh, the judiciary leans heavily toward the ideological um, presuppositions of our prime minister and those prime ministers before him who appointed other justices. And, you know, it seems like, so I was listening to um, my friend Trish Wood's podcast and she mentioned like, you know, maybe the, maybe the courts are going to save us, but it seems like there's this problem with judicial activism where like the Supreme court of Canada just would not hear certain cases just out of hand, they won't even see them um, where yeah. it concerns fighting the government back against the COVID stuff. And yeah. then we had this ruling against uh, the Honorable Brian Peckford and his charter challenge against the travel mandate, which they ruled as moot. 
even yeah. though the government says they reserve the right to impose yeah. it again. They, they've only suspended it, yep. Right. So, like, it, with this in mind, with these um, examples of the intransigence of the judiciary, mm-hmm. where are the places that, you know, Canadians are going to be able to see some results in fighting back against this, making sure it doesn't happen again, and maybe just maybe getting some accountability out of the actors that brought us to this point. Okay, so here's how, as I've been thinking about this, first of all, the courts have been very clear over the last number of years. They, okay, as I explained earlier, the legislatures have delegated their authority to the bureaucrats. And what's been happening over the last, certainly the last 10, 20 years, more so it's now seen in spades. We're seeing the fruits of this ideological or this theoretical position of the law is that the court. So legislatures delegate to the bureaucrats. The courts at the same time have been deferring to the decisions of the bureaucrats because they say the bureaucrats are the experts. They're the ones who've got all the training. They're the ones who are dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. And who are we, the judges, to be interfering with the uh, decisions of the bureaucrats? And if you look at all of these decisions on the COVID cases, we are seeing that the courts in Canada, unlike the courts in the United States, which uh, a number of them have taken seriously uh, the Bill of Rights in the United States, in Canada, the courts have basically have so watered down the Charter of Rights, as Jordan Peterson uh, recently said, you know, that the Charter of Rights is not worth the paper it's written on, is how uh, Peterson made mention of it. Well, I would say it's the reason why he could make that statement is because the judiciary in Canada has deferred to the bureaucrats over and over and over again. They don't want to interfere with the bureaucrats as they uh, there's a whole legal argument behind it. And you could look at some of my writing and I talk about charter values and 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 the language that the courts have used to get away from uh, enforcing rights. And they're basically coming up with their own theories of how the Constitution ought to be interpreted. And they use this term charter values, which is not even in the Constitution whatsoever. And they use this this uh, idea, as long as the bureaucrats turns their mind to charter values, then we're not going to interfere with them because so they're do, the experts. Do, do the courts now, you know, forgive me my naive naivete here or my ignorance or both. Is there not in theory like, do the courts not have some kind of responsibility, like in the balance of powers, to sort of advocate on behalf of the citizens, given that bureaucrats are basically outside the realm of democratic contestation or even listening to the citizens they serve? Like, it seems to me like, the, if anything, the courts should be siding with the citizens less than with those whom are, by definition, unaccountable. So what happens is, is that the 
the courts have this concept of deciding what is going to be in the public good. So if you look at the Canadian, if you look at the Charter of Rights, the Charter of Rights says that whereas Canada was founded upon the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law, we have all of these various rights. We have these rights subject to reasonable limits as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And what so we have the rights, but they have to be. If there's a violation against those rights, in other words, between the the government's activity and the citizen, the, the judiciary is supposed to be moderating that relationship, that vertical relationship between the government at the top and the citizens at the bottom. So then. When the government interferes with the individual right, the courts are to analyze that interference and say, was it reasonable in the circumstance? And what we're finding is that over and over again is that the courts on a host of issues of which the COVID experience is one of them, the courts have deferred to the bureaucrats and said, that the bureaucrats were granted that authority, delegated by the, the legislature, and we are now saying they are the experts, they're the doctors, they are the public health experts and so forth, and we're not going to interfere with their decisions because they are concerned about the public good, the public health. So my response to that has been that the courts have failed in their responsibility to ensure that the rights of the citizens have not been unjustly infringed and that they should dig in to whether or not the bureaucrats and the so-called science is in fact accurate so that the opinions of the experts and the uh, practical implications of the decisions of the experts are not so overbearing on the citizens that citizens have no rights. We saw a very balanced approach, in my view, in the United States with the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with, for example, freedom of religion and the churches in the United States. In Canada, we didn't see any of that. All of those kinds of, of balancing uh, the balancing always went in favor to the uh, of the bureaucrats and government policy. This, to me, has to do with the understanding of the of their role, the judges on the benches. To me, and and I said this just recently on a Twitter post, which got a little bit of attraction, uh, is that we need to have judges who are appointed in this country who understand the philosophy and the history of, of the philosophical position that made Western civilization so great. I mean, the reason we have so much freedom didn't just appear. Like, it, it, it just didn't just happenstance. No, there was some very serious philosophical reasoning that came as a result of the aftermath of much bloodshed, for example, after the uh, English Civil War 
and the whole Oliver Cromwell experience and the decapitation of the king and all the rest of it. And then all of the debates that went on with John Locke and with Montesquieu over in France. And, and uh, then we got the American experience with Madison and Adams and, and uh, Jefferson. And everyone was debating what does it mean to be human? What is it? What is it the rights that we need? We need that today. We're not getting it. Listen, I've been through Canadian uh, universities and studies, and I have, yes, I took political science in, in St. John's at Memorial, and I had some really great professors uh, there. And we got into Locke, and we got into Machiavelli, we got into uh, Hobbes, and, and the whole philosophical, and I mean, it was like rich. But then when I got into graduate school in Canada, um, uh, like uh, working on some other graduate work, work in other uh, universities, my word, it was all uh, woke ideological arguments that like, where was Locke? Where was Hobbes? Where was all of this stuff? And, and it's been less and less and less. And now we've got this mindset that History began in 1982 when we got the charter. History didn't begin in 1982. And the, the court's pronouncements on the law in the early decisions of the charter were actually very good. I mean, you look at Justice Brian Dixon, who was the chief justice when the charter came into being in Canada. You look at his reasonings. He's constantly referencing philosophy and law and theology and or, you know, theological uh, concepts that actually made an impact on the law. Today, no judge would go into that. Why? Well, because that's unacceptable today. You don't go talking about those concepts in, anymore. And so we've got a, a wholesale change in mindset in those who are sitting on the bench. And to me, I think, uh, you know, with all of that's been going on, they just simply don't understand. I, you know, I mean, I know this is uh, this is going to be one of those uh, uh, comments that people will say, oh, you know, Bussy is just shooting off his mouth. But in my in my mind, we we are lacking a respect for the deep classical understanding uh, in the Judeo Christian Western civilization understanding of what it means to be human and, and it is as basic as that yeah and, I, and i've i've arrived at similar conclusions because i went through a period of being obsessed with politics like you know many young men do and um we have a very significant deficit of meaning out in the zeitgeist right now yeah and um you you mentioned we were talking about the judges and the bench um <clears throat> There was a, 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 a our current chief justice, uh, a fellow named Richard Wagner. Mm -hmm. uh, he gave an interview to one of the French language newspapers and basically accused the Freedom Convoy of being like anarchy and we have to use the yeah. full force of law to deal with it. When, well, actually, the full force of the state, he said. When, when is it the purview of a judge... To before hearing any evidence about anything and basically saying you no longer have a right to protest and the state has every right to crush you. Unless, like, of course, you're going to protest what uh, is acceptable. Like, how 
Is, is he one of these people that got nominated by like Kretchen or Martin or Trudeau the Younger? Like, where did this guy come from? No, he got nominated by uh, Harper. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we have a uniparty. We have a problem here. Okay, so, so you know, that's, that's a very interesting case. Um, a number of uh, friends of mine uh, did a petition when, when he made that statement to the, um, um, to the it, Quebec paper. I think it was Le Devoir. Yeah. Le Devoir in Montreal. And I, I mean, you, you read those statements and it's kind of like, wow. Uh, like really it's kind of like, wow. Most, most understanding has been, I, I've, I've heard this said by a number of politicians in the past, uh, you know, they had a lot of good friends, but when they appointed them to the court, they no longer became their friends. And the reason why is because historically in Canada, when you were appointed, even though you're politically appointed, even though your political friends appointed you uh, to sit on the bench as a judge, those judges almost stayed away from those politicians that appointed them because they didn't want to be seen as political. And so a lot of political, uh, in fact, uh, some politicians would 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 say, um, well, if I want to get rid of, a, of an enemy or a friend or anybody in politics, I just appoint him as a judge. I'll never see him again. And they'll never bother me. They'll never contact me. You know, it was kind of like a rabbit hole. Um, and... Uh, his, so here's an example. In in the 1980s, during the debate over whether or not Canada should have a Charter of Rights, Trudeau the senior, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was prime minister. And it was a lifelong dream of him to have a Charter of Rights. There was a big debate as to whether or not Indigenous rights would be specifically included in the charter and so the first iteration of the charter was it had a uh, uh, special mention to treaties and the rights and so forth and the judge out west um thomas berger in british columbia uh was outspoken and said uh this is a great charter because it makes reference to indigenous rights then a second version of the charter came out and it removed uh, Trudeau removed all of the discussions of the treaties and and indigenous rights. And Thomas Berger at West got very angry and started going on a almost like a, a country tour. At least he, he made various speeches against the government for not including the indigenous rights and the treaty rights and all the rest of it. The chief justice at the time of the Supreme Court of Canada was Justice Boris Laskin. And as the chief justice, he is the chair of the Canadian Judicial Council, the CJC. And a senior justice, and I think it might have been someone in the federal court, but anyhow, they filed a complaint against Thomas Berger for getting involved in the political process. And so that complaint came up to the uh, Judicial Council. And ultimately, the Judicial Council um, was very critical and said uh, Thomas Berger should not have 
made any such statements. He's a judge. He shouldn't be involved in the political process. And uh, but anyhow, they never. Uh, so Berger still stayed on the bench for a little bit. But then what happened was Boris Laskin, the chief justice, gave a speech in Toronto. I think it was to the Canadian Bar Association in which he said that any judge that makes any political statement ought to step down from the bench. Like, I mean, he was basically thrown the gauntlet. You got involved in politics. The administration of justice is being brought into disrepute and you should step down. Justice Thomas Berger stepped down and said that since he did not have the support of this of the Chief Justice of Canada, he stepped down. And it became a big political row. Well, now compare that to what happened during the convoy when our own Chief Justice got right into the political fray and started condemning the truckers. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, how is it that we've come to a place in this country that now the judge, the chief justice of Canada, can make such a political statement as he did to Le Devoir? Like, it's unheard of. And I, like, I, I predicted and I, I, I wrote it in the book. I, I, I'd be very surprised. If any of the COVID cases, the travel cases, the Peckford case, uh, Peckford, uh, Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland and uh, Maxime Bernier uh, is basically taking the government on and saying this was unconstitutional to have a travel ban. And I will be very surprised and I could and, you know, anything's possible. I'll be very surprised that the Supreme Court of Canada will even hear the case. Um. And then, and part of the reason is, I think that the uh, Chief Justice would have a rough time dealing with the arguments that would be made that he recuse himself. So, so that's that's a, an amazing evolution of what is perceived to be the role of the Chief Justice and the role of judges and the effect that, you know, because once... Once the judiciary now starts taking political sides, it's going to become more and more difficult uh, to maintain a high regard for the principle that justice must not only be seen, but be seen to be done. Right. So something in your book I wanted to bring up sure. uh, related to this. You use the term cathedral a lot. Yes. And um, I think there was, we had an email exchange because there's an American dissident thinker named Curtis Yarvin who uh, started using the term on his old blog called Unqualified Reservations. And to him, the, the cathedral is the sort of confluence of media, the academy and the government. And this is how like it's it, it, it's it's now it's sort of own case. They're they're separate from everybody else and they are the sort of power elite and it's where all of these institutions overlap and i have to wonder you know like um the judiciary and the court systems you know we're all human 
Um, they all hang out in the same clubs. You know, they're, they're, yep. they're friendly with lawyers and lawyers all went to school and lawyers all have political aspirations and politics is heavily embedded in the cathedral. And the whole thing is very messy. And I just wonder, you know, you, you use the term a lot in your book and do, do you see, like, do you get the sense that like the judiciary in Canada is like too close to cathedral Nord and too influenced by it? and is not standing a, a safe distance outside of it in order to have, you know, claim to be just to actually administer justice without having been influenced by the cathedral. There is no question in my mind. And I, I use the cathedral in the same sense, which is uh, quite fascinating. And I had no idea of this uh, author until you mentioned it to me. Uh, and, um, and I want to read some more on what uh, um, this philosopher has and his views and so on. But yeah, my my thought is that there is a cathedral. There is a there is a sense of what is the accepted opinion, and it's the academia, the um, all of the various power centers of government of the bureaucracy and all the rest is almost like they're reading from the same song sheet what was phenomenal to me is that even during the pandemic the the courts themselves were like they were taking orders from the government as well with respect to i'm i i haven't studied this a whole lot but i did hear of one judge Actually, I've heard of two judges. One was a justice of the peace. So that's the lower provincial magistrate kind of thing. Um, one justice of the peace that I'm aware of ended up having to step down uh, because um, of refusing to take the vaccine. Um, but all of the courts across the country uh, have not have have basically uh, I don't and and there is another judge, a superior court judge somewhere in Canada that I've heard of. I'd like to find out more about it, but uh, did not take the vaccine and has, uh, I think there's some discipline being applied. And I don't know exactly to what extent it is. But all of that to say, I am definitely of the view that the judiciary has definitely been influenced by the cathedral. I think there is this... Um, now, the cathedral is, it's amorphous in some sense, uh, but it is the idea of that there is an, a, an accepted opinion amongst the thinking class or the people with the right opinion. Um, there are, you know, uh, uh, Bruce, Bruce Party, who's law professor at Queen's University, um, also uh, makes makes the point that there is this idea that in certain circles and I, and I call that circle, the cathedral uh, where if you don't have the right opinion, you're not only wrong, but you have to be crushed. And that's kind of how I'm sensing it. And that's how it's almost like you, you're no longer deserving. And what I was very happy to see in the Tamara Leach 
bail hearings. And we'll see what the decision is going to be in the coming weeks with her uh, trial, uh, her and Chris Barber and so on. Uh, but I, I was very pleased to see um some judges take a very strong pro freedom uh, in, in pro freedom in the sense that uh the lower courts were just taking it way too far and the courts never used the term political but in my view i think the courts recognized the political nature of those uh decisions but to say that um the courts are influenced by the cathedral i would say absolutely there's no question they're human um and uh, everyone wants to be accepted and everyone wants to be part of the uh, the cocktail circuit and uh there is no question in my view uh that there is an acceptable position on these things and if you're outside of it uh you're in trouble and that's just just how it is um did so, you have uh do you have designs on one day serving on the bench and being the uh cranky old guy that actually <laughs> wants to maintain the foundational the, pillars of western civilization you know um uh the thing is someone who is conservative who has a very deep spiritual backing and understanding of you know the judeo-christian uh experience uh at this current time uh it's not a position that uh a politician would be willing to put on the bench or a uh you know and and my standard classical understanding of the law and the and the role of the like i i'm i'm definitely more of a an originalist in the sense that you know what the law is what it is and it's and we ought to accept it as to what it is instead of being judicial how can i say uh judicial philosophers who want to impose a new ideological position that really has no basis or understanding uh in in the law and because they want to modernize it and i say if you want to modernize things then uh that's what the legislature is for that's what the political process is for um that's not a um that's not an acceptable view in this country uh and so i'll be the outsider and i will uh, do my writing and my podcasts and my my presentations and um just continue advocating for a wide spectrum and understanding of the classical understanding of what it means to be free the importance of the individual and uh you know just the long tradition that we've had in our philosophy uh in our society that has served us so well and yet right now is being hammered as if it's somehow uh, an alien you know it's kind of like i remember this book go between there's a famous line where it says something like you know the past is a strange country people do things differently there they sure do and as the kids online like to say uh, it's about time we return yeah. uh, <laughs> uh barry, barry bussy you've been uh, extremely generous with your time sir 
Um, do you have any more? Uh, would you like to like uh, plug your book a little more? I mean, we, yeah, were so, hey. we, were, we were supposed to talk about your book and then we just like went off in all these directions about law. Well, and <laughs> Yeah, well, let, let me just uh, highlight the book just a, a wee little bit. Uh, I call it 210 degrees Celsius because that is the temperature at which diesel uh, auto ignites. So the idea here is that the Canadian government put so much pressure, so much heat on the Canadian people that just like diesel, when the conditions are right, people erupt automatically. And that's how I saw the uh, convoy. And in the book, I have a couple of chapters that just kind of set the stage that point out uh, a discussion about the election that I feel changed Canadians, where we created the, the other of the unvaccinated in the election of 2021. And it was indeed a tribal attack against unvaccinated Canadians. And the truckers stood up and said, no, not on our watch. Then I outlined 16 ways the truckers, in my view, um, the convoy has created this, what I think is a pivotal moment in Canadian history and political history. Even the politician, uh, even the prime minister, just uh, during his year in uh, speech, uh, during uh the year in interviews of 2023, he was asked about the truckers again. Like he's not going to get over it. Uh, he's not going to be able to bypass the idea that he imposed the Emergencies Act, the most uh, powerful legislation against the Canadian people. He's not going to get over it. I feel uh, among the items that I say, the 16 ways that uh, they ignited Canada for the long haul is that number one, they gave people hope. They broke Trudeau's monopoly over the COVID narrative. They gave the average Canadian a voice and they revealed and the truckers revealed that in that velvet glove of the prime minister was a steel fist, which is a take of you know Bismarck's idea back in the 1800s, but revealed also the importance that justice must not only be done, but seen to be done, that Failure of the academics, the mainstream media, the banks, the healthcare system, the police, the politicians, the lies of the prime minister, the, the nonviolent, the, the failure of every institution in society that's supposed to stand up and protect us. Right, right, and and then also I think that one of the great things about the protest was that it was nonviolent, and it and that to me gives it so much legitimacy. And finally. I believe that the protest awakened faith and freedom in the Canadian public again. And, and I saw that in spades when I was up there in Ottawa, too. And I think I think all of that together and the idea that we live not by lies. I make reference to uh, Soldier Nitsen on that point. And also the importance that as we move forward, that we have got to as Canadians and I think as people and citizens of the world, we simply cannot accept government at face value. And I'm a strong believer in the statement that Ronald Reagan made. He said that uh, that you be very careful when the when the uh, bureaucrat comes to you and says, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Nine most like, terrifying words in the English language. I'm from I the mean, government and I'm here to help. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so and so my my point is, look. Hey, this was a pivotal moment. We need to we need to harness the power and the energy that it gave us as Canadians, as citizens, 
and really ignited the world in many ways, right? I mean, we got these protests going on in Germany. You mentioned New Zealand and others. I mean, yeah, no, it, it woke people up. And I think that's, um, that's a testament uh, to uh, individuals who said enough is enough. Right. Yeah. Enough was enough. And, uh, you know, I, I really dig your book. I'm not a hundred percent all the way through it yet, but, uh, it's, it's been making for fantastic reading. It's very, very well documented, very thorough. All of your arguments are backed up. It's a, it's a sort of historical tome about the sort of political ramifications, the legal, all the legal stuff. Um, it's a great book. Uh, 210 degrees Celsius, 16 ways the truckers ignited Canada for the long haul. Everybody go buy it. Um, and, you know, Barry Bussey, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much, Gord. It's a, been a pleasure. Right. And as I like to end every show with uh, Way of the Road. <laughs> the fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca